Um, and if you are an older kid as well, you can also go because we have been highlighting our missionaries uh, every Sunday. So you don't want to miss out on that. Cool. Um, yes. So I'm Chris Mack, y'all, um, director of, of Mercy here at City Hope Fellowship. Uh, glad to be here. Hunter, thank you for the warm welcome this morning. And um, yeah, what I'd like to do is take the time to actually recap the sermon that you preached last week. Uh, definitely appreciate you preaching a very hard and real text. Um, and if you weren't here, uh, Hunter got a chance to speak from the book of Exodus, chapter 23, verses 20 through 33. And in it, God was clear with his people and saying that they were once oppressed, but he would be with them as they obtained the land promised to them and that the Lord would be present with them. So Hunter also reminded us that, in, um, that we're taking a journey through this narrative. So we've been through the book of Exodus, okay? And what you need to remember in being in this series is we're going through this journey, this large narrative where God will fulfill his promise to his people. To summarize, God saw the affliction of his people and he would deliver them from Egypt and then bring them to the promised land by destroying their opponents. And what's really dope about this scripture um, in Exodus uh, 7 through 8, there, there are verses that follow after that, 9 through 12. I'm just going to highlight a snippet. It's not up there, so Paul, you don't have to try to scramble for it. But in verse 12, and this is just a snippet, it says that he said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. You shall serve God on this mountain. The next step is that Israel would be near the mountain and would serve the Lord. And in this passage um, that I'll be reading, I'm preaching from Exodus 24, uh, verses 1 through 11. Uh, your boy is going through the ESV this morning. So if you're not with the ESV, I'm sorry. We ESV till Josh come back, I guess. <laughs> um, but in the, in the real note, uh, we get to see a moment where God is, is present with his people, where he establishes his covenant with his people after going through the Ten Commandments and the laws. And we see this glorious moment where some of his people share a meal with the Lord. So we're going to read the passage. We'll pray. And then I'll talk to y'all about my main point. Is that all right? Cool. So let's dig through it. Exodus 24, 1 through 11. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses shall Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. 
Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then after that, Moses and Aaron, Nadam and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet as it were a, pa- <clears throat> excuse me, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is true. And Father, I ask that as I take time to preach this message, that you would be highlighted, that you would be exalted, that I would be humbled. Fill me with your spirit, God. And I pray that for this family here today and for our guests, that they would receive your word, that they would receive this proclamation. Help me preach clearly, God, with with joy, with fear, uh, with all the appropriate feelings in this text. And I pray that we would all hear the things that you would have to say in your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Nah, you're going to hear all the cough drop chewing in the microphone and everything. I feel like I got like something in there, though. You know what I mean? It'll if it is, it'll come out later. (laughs) The title of my sermon today is at the table. At the table. And the question that I want to ask you all today is, do you know that God wants you at his table? Do you know? You're going to be the first one there. Do you know that God wants you at his table? Do you know that God, that Lord, wants you at his dinner table? Now, before we get into this main point, we got to dig through context. We got to understand what the author's trying to write here. And context is key. And so let's dive into some of that. Verses 1 through 2 we see Moses getting ready to head back to the foot of Mount Sinai after having a conversation with the Lord. And in it, he told Moses and these group of men that he's with that they are there to get ready to go to this mountain and they are to worship from afar. So if I were to paint this scene, you got Israel staying at the foot of this mountain. You got Moses with his group of men preparing to go up this mountain at a certain distance. And at some point, we see Moses travel even higher of the mountain. And what's unique about this setup is we're getting a glimpse of what's to come in in further chapters. All of these layers are building on one another. And eventually, God gets to a point where he helps his people construct the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, which is this portable sanctuary for the people to carry and to worship God and for God to stick with them in their travels and in their journey. In the center of the tabernacle, there's the Ark of the Covenant, which is this beautiful box that the Lord decides he will enter into so he can dwell 
with his people. And throughout the tabernacle, there are these certain points that, you know, priests and uh, elders of Israel have access to, but that the people don't have access to. And there are these parameters that are set. And right now for Israel, this placement isn't fully put together, but already when we see this mountain in the way that the people approach this mountain, we're seeing some of those parameters being set up. A big part of this is because straight up, God is holy, and Israel understands that they are not holy. They are not God. And to be in the presence of the Lord means that they had to prepare themselves. They had to come correct. I don't know if y'all ever heard that saying, you got to come correct when you approach me. I'm not telling y'all that y'all got to come correct when y'all approach me. But God is saying, you got to come correct when you approach me. In chapter 19, before God gives his commandments to the people, he instructs Moses to consecrate the people, which is a process of helping them be set apart, to cleanse themselves, to set parameters around this mountain. And they basically do this so they aren't destroyed by God's holiness. Everyone goes through this process before they even listen to the commandments that we heard. In verses 3 through 8, what we see is all the laws, that after all these laws have been given, right? We've been through the, the Ten Commandments and some of the laws that followed right after. Uh, after this, you see Moses with the Book of the Covenant writing everything down, finding it together, and the people confirm to the Lord that all that has been spoken, we will do. Moses sets up the ceremony event, right? They're getting ready to go through the burnt offerings, the peace offerings. They got these pillars set up. So like everyone is here for this monumental moment. Now, we see things like burnt offerings and peace offerings, and in this text, it's not clear on if the function of these offerings have been made clear to the people, but what we do know is that in previous chapters, there are mentions of burnt offerings and peace offerings dedicated to the Lord so that they can love him and that they can worship him. But what we know as readers of the text is that we have an awareness of what these sacrifices mean. So again, nation of Israel still working on their structure. You know what I'm saying? They're traveling and that structure is being worked out as they enter into the promised land. But these offerings are significant. And again, we know what these offerings mean. Just to give a, little high, a few highlights here, burnt offerings are considered a sacrifice of atonement and acknowledgement of Israel's sin. But this is also a request that their relationship with God is to be renewed and restored because of their sin. Peace offerings represent communion and fellowship shared with God. And that's the one that I want y'all to, to keep in your mind, okay, as we go through this history, is that this peace offering is communion and fellowship shared with God. You're probably also wondering why there's blood thrown everywhere. It's a bloody mess, right? Now, Moses throws blood on the altar, and he throws blood on the people, communicating to them that this blood 
is the blood of the covenant that has been made with them. In other words, this is the blood that seals the deal. They, they heard all these commandments. God saying, I took you out of Egypt and I'm taking you into the promised land. But before we enter into this land, we got to make sure we get some things straight. OK, we got to make sure we make some things clear. This is what it means to worship me. This is the things that will help you love neighbor and to love me. And then he throws blood on him. <laughs> the blood seals the deal, representing the covenant God has made with his people. And this is God's people sharing vows with God. God intends on keeping his promises, but he also wants it to be known that there will be consequences. We got to hold these vows together. It's kind of sounds similar to marriage, right? Recently, I went to a, a, a preaching workshop with Hunter um, called Simeon Trust Workshop, and uh, it was there where a pastor, uh, his name's Drew Hunter of Zionsville Fellowship. I got to make sure I give credit where it's due. Um, he preached on the same passage, and the way he described this event was it being this marriage ceremony, minus the blood, that the Lord has created for him and his people to take their vows seriously and to commit to one another and for the people to know how much that the Lord loves them and that he is with them and that he will help them along their way. So after blood is thrown everywhere and they make this commitment, verses 9 through 11, finally we get to this point where Moses and Aaron and his sons and these 70 elders begin their journey up the mountain from afar. And in this moment, I start to wonder, what is the feeling that these men have approaching this mountain, approaching this God that they have seen do miraculous things, approaching this Lord who has appeared in smoke and fire, a God who has also been real and honest about times when Israel has sinned and there have been consequences for that. A God who's telling them, hey, you got to make sure to have these parameters set up before you approach me, right? And in, in this moment where God's like, the people can't come, but, but Moses and elders, I want y'all to come up. <laughs> and just thinking about it makes me wonder, like, I, I don't know if I'd be feeling too satisfied or, or too happy going up this mountain when I know that God is all these things. And I've seen him work and do miraculous things and, and get the people out of Egypt. But he is also serious about sin. They've spent the chunk of time examining laws, prerequisites, and even seeing the righteous anger of the Lord in moments when they were in sin. Did they fear approaching God in these moments? Because I feel like I probably would. But I can only imagine that maybe there was this huge feeling of relief when they approached the presence of the Lord, only to be welcomed by a glimpse, a glimpse, a, just a sliver of God's presence, being at his feet, viewing a pavement that resembles sapphire as clear as the heavens. 
And verse 11 tells us that he did not lay his hands on the chief men of Israel, which means he did not strike them down. That's not God saying he didn't lay his hands on them and pray for them. This is them saying God didn't. He did not wipe them out. They beheld God. They ate and they drank. They beheld the Lord. They ate and they drank. The original audience reading this text were told by the author that these men were not killed by God. They were welcomed by God. And this makes me wonder if the readers assume that God was going to kill them reading the passage. Previous passages show how serious God is about the, the people of Israel not coming up to the mountain because his presence would kill them. Right. And now here's this moment where the Lord demonstrates his mercy to his people. So this brings me back to my main question that I asked y'all earlier. Did you know that God wants you at his dinner table? Considering all those things that I just mentioned, from the blood to the parameters to the seriousness of sin. But we also see that he's merciful in these moments. Did you know that God wants you at his dinner table? He doesn't tolerate you at his table. He wants you at his table. Maybe you're thinking, well, of course, the Lord wants me at his table. I'm a likable person. (laughs) You might be the uh, Christian that, you know, got A through Z figured out. It's like, oh, well, it's through the blood of Jesus, right? That's the right answer. Yeah. But I did take time to consider what would it be like to be in the Lord's shoes, which immediately falls short because I already start to find flaws in myself. And what I found in myself is that I don't want to just invite anybody at my dinner table, right? And it's, it's far easier to accept an invite to a dinner, right? So just, just imagine someone says, hey, I want to have you over for dinner. We do this all the time. We love food at City Hope, right? So we do this all the time. You can either say yes, you can accept that invitation. It's easy. And if you don't want to go or you can't go, you can say no. I don't know many people that says, well, why? Why not, right? <laughs> it's like, hey, that's, that's my business. Stay my business. <laughs> Some people might ask. Now, to extend an invite means there are these layers of difficulty, right? I kind of set it up from like easy, medium, and, and hard mode. And, and if, if, if you feel any of these things, just, just say amen. Just say amen, right? Here's the easy mode, right? You got close friends and acquaintances that you want to invite into your home. That's easy. Y'all feeling that? Huh? Okay. <laughs> Not many of y'all have friends. I'm sorry. <laughs> amen? Okay, okay. All right, all right. I just, I just need to know y'all vibing with me, Okay. Here's medium mode, okay? There's people that you haven't caught up with in a while, and you feel like you should invite them. In fact, I mean, you want to invite them. you got a busy schedule and whatnot, but you got people you want to invite to your table. Yeah? Okay. Some of y'all thinking. Some of them people popping up. You ain't got to say who it is. Here's a hard one, though, Okay? There are people you personally know 
And you should invite to your table, but for whatever reason, you decide that you, you don't want them there. That might be from some falling out that you have with a family member or a friend. That might be someone that you have disagreements with. That might be somebody who just simply annoys you. And they are, <laughs> and they are brother and sister in Christ. <laughs> or it might be someone that you fear might make you and everybody else uncomfortable at the table. You know? This is way harder, extending an invitation, because I think as a believer, God wants me to be, he wants me to be intentional about who I bring to my table. But there are surely times when I'm judgmental with my invites. And on the flip side, I'm not as intentional. But the Lord is very intentional about who he invites to his table and far less judgmental to who he invites to his table. And when I say dinner table, it, it, it doesn't just need to be dinner table. I'm, what I'm getting at is fellowship. Fellowship with brother and sister in Christ. Fellowship in, in getting to know people who don't know Jesus. The point that I'm getting across is that sometimes we can be too picky with who we offer our fellowship to. And not always for the right reasons. But the Lord extends his arms to everyone. As far as I'm concerned, he sends an RSVP to all people, and all people are welcome, perhaps with the exception of being sensitive to dress code. You know what I'm saying? You got to come right. You got to come correct. In context of Israel, he calls his people to prepare themselves before they approach him. He wants them to be in his presence and to behold him. And he wants that for us, too. He wants us to be able to celebrate with food and with drink that reminds us that it is a special and joyous and exciting occasion to be in the presence of the Lord. How amazing would it be to be welcome in God's presence the same way that the elders of Israel were welcomed? Well, I think it means that uh, we should get ready for dinner. I think it means we should get ready because the Lord has sent each and every one of you, an RSVP, to be at his dinner table. And here's the thing. He expects an answer. Some of y'all have, who's been in that position where you, you, you got an event going on and you need people to RSVP for, for, for your sanity's sake? You need people to RSVP. Tell me if you coming or not. <laughs> and my job here is to get y'all to this party that the Lord invites us to. So I got three sub points for y'all. Y'all know how we do. Got three Presby points. These points are, one, they aren't up there, but that's not the main point. Prepare for dinner, show up to dinner, and stay for dinner. Y'all got that? Y'all need to write that down if y'all need to. Go ahead. Prepare for dinner. Show up, and you got to stay. Okay? You can't come, and then, hey, I got got something to do. Somebody call me, you know. Uh, I got to go, you know, take chicken out the oven. I'll be right back. There's an emergency. I got to go. I'm sorry. You got to stay for dinner. All right, prepare for dinner. When I say prepare for dinner, what I mean is 
It's an open invitation to fellowship with the Lord, not just here and now, but in the life to come. And you might be thinking, what do I need for this checklist? Right? Israel's been given this checklist in order to, to fellowship with the Lord. You know, do I need to, do I need to get ready too? What are, the, what are the things that I need to do in order to get ready? Do I need to brush my teeth? Do I need to shave my head? Do I need to take a shower, throw on my good clothes? Those are the things that I did yesterday and today. But we do see Israel following specific instructions, okay? And they're getting themselves ready. In Exodus 19, verses 1 through 11, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. During the confirmation of the covenant, we witness people getting splattered in blood, which establishes this covenant. And the relationship with God and his people is being established in this process. And, and the people did all that God and his law required so that they could experience life and celebration with the Lord. And through this obedience, we also see the leadership of Israel getting closer and closer. Uh, of course, we know had any of the people, leaders included, approached God in an incorrect manner, we'd have reason to read about their deaths. Because it seems that's probably what the, what the you know, audience was expecting. And the author's like, y'all, no, they actually feasted. This is a different reality than what we're used to as Christians. You see, we do understand that blood sacrifices and cleansing ceremonies were this thing that Israel did, and we're still learning what exactly that means, right? Some of y'all are like, I'm still trying to understand what the blood means splattered everywhere. Um, but we don't do that. That's, that's not our reality here as Christians. So at City Hope, we do not do those things. But these were only copies of something much greater. The book of Hebrews, chapter 11, or yeah, chapter, no, chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, should be on the screen here. Uh, it says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made by hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ash of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. God used Old Testament preparations and regulations so that the people could be near him in his presence. But our way of doing this is simply through believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus who claims that he is the sacrifice that forever fulfills and satisfies the requirement of the law. 
Hebrews 9.22 says, and it's not on the screen, but I'm just jabbing this in here. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But I do have a scripture on the screen that says in Matthew 26, 26 through 29. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. That sounds like a feast. Sounds nice. And this is Jesus clearly saying that I'll be back. I'll be back. Through faith in Jesus, brothers and sisters in Christ. We travel up this mountain or to this party already dressed and ready to go. Preparing for this event is putting your faith in Jesus and trust that he's enough to get you at the table, not on your own efforts or anything outside of him who claims to be the way into this party. So that was point number one. Number two, you got to show up. Now, now that you know that you invited and you got ready, might as well go. Assuming that you're fully dressed and ready, you need to actually show up for this dinner and show up to the mountaintop with the Lord and enjoy all that he has to offer. And I love Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9, because this is a reference point that the feast on the mountain is a feast that exists for all people. We've seen Israel feast on this mountain, but in this scripture, he's telling us on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. All people. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all of the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in this salvation. Amen. Rejoice and be glad that the Lord has provided a way for salvation. Y'all, God is saying we get to be a part of this celebration to come. It's so grand. It's, It's so unlike anything that we've ever experienced. In Exodus, it's a feast for Israel, but through Jesus and all that he's accomplished, it's a feast for us too, Jew and Gentile alike. It's to the point that anyone in their right mind would probably ask, why would you not come to something like this? Well, there's some things that hold us back from that. My theory is that coming to a party like this might be overwhelming. Because it feels too good to be true. 
Because a party like that is not what we experience here in this world. So beautiful and unimaginable and perfect, but that is not what this land is like. Could it be true that some of us think that a dinner party like this is too good to be true? Maybe we've been so trained by hurt, pain, and trauma of this world that it feels like something like that can't exist. Or it's hard to wrap our minds around the idea that that is something that we get to experience today. Now, maybe not the fullness of this party, but Jesus does tell his, his, his family that he sends a helper to us, and it's far greater that our helper is with us in this moment here and now. That's got to mean something. And there are people in this congregation that I would say have probably been through far worse than I have. You know what I'm saying? So saying something like this feels like a dream unimaginable and unattainable. And I'm sorry if that's the case. I'm sorry if, it, if it's hard to imagine and to see that and to believe that. Or maybe you feel like your sin is far too great to ever be able to achieve something like that. There have certainly been moments where even in my walk as a believer, I've, I've felt those moments, right? Coming from a, a faith background where a lot of it was based on tradition. Coming to a moment, you know, around high school when I seriously Surrender my life to Jesus. And y'all know walking through that faith gets challenging at times because there are moments where you feel like you, are, you have these moments of a mountaintop experience, but you don't experience that all the time. You don't feel like you're close to God all the time. Or it might be your sin that keeps you away from experiencing the Lord. And it feels like in our moments where we're alone, and we talked about this a little bit during our staff meeting when, when, when Hunter and Ebony were helping me prepare, but Often in our moments of isolation and Christian individuality, that's when Satan speaks the loudest. It's in the moments when we are in our heads, where we know our sin greater than anybody, not God, of course, but anybody else. And when we know how sinful we are, Satan starts to shine a light on that, not in the best way. But what's beautiful about a party like this is We are amongst community, amongst believers, amongst the people of God who can speak truth into our lives. And God creates settings like that for us to be able to share not only our sin, but to share the beauty and forgiveness of the Lord and to speak in our hearts and our lives. Your sin is not too great. You don't have to worry about that if Jesus has already paid the way for you to come to this party. And all you got to do is be glad and rejoice that he has paved a way for you to step in. That's simple. It'll change your life. Don't mean that, the, that Satan won't try to come for you. You know what I'm saying? He's going to come for you. But you just stick around to the party. You just stick around. <laughs> and that's my final point. We got to stay for dinner. You got to stay. Can't leave. What I mean by this is once we have the party, once you are in fellowship with the Lord and celebrating, being in presence with him, 
We ought not seek anything else that'll keep us away from that. The Lord shared with all of Israel over and over again that he is God and he's worthy of their worship and praise. The people will find no greatest satisfaction in anything else other than him. We've seen moments where they cried out for freedom while they were in bondage with Egypt. And yet, even coming from that, traveling to their promised land, we've seen them say, yo, I'd rather go back because I'm hungry, and at least I know what they're cooking at this party over here. Moments where they'd rather go back to the slave drivers just for food that they are used to. It won't be long before we see even throughout Exodus this moment where Israel worships this golden calf because they get impatient with Moses being on the mountaintop. There will be more times when Israel worships their idols over God. But for us, we tend to be slow to consider ourselves Israel in these parts of the narrative. But it's true. We're quick to want to experience God at the party and then leave out of his presence due to the idols in our own lives and our own hearts. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 21 through 22 says, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? In this passage, Paul is telling Corinth that they need to flee idolatry and not to put themselves in these tempting situations. And we see Paul warning believers that God and idols do not mix. And as broken people, we find ourselves wanting to dabble in sin and then returning to God when he gives us good reason to not leave in the first place. The world is enticing, but a believer in Jesus is given the spirit. So we can experience much, much, much greater joy in the Lord, not just after death, but here and now. Yo, I, I got to say, Hunter and Ebony, y'all, y'all been clutch helping me sermon prep, right? So another point, I, I got to give credit where it's due. And one thing that helped me remember is that the Holy Spirit is here right now for each and every one of us to experience the promises. Because it is so easy to like speak about this thing to come and to wonder, well, what does that mean for me right now? What does that mean for my life right now when, when I feel like I'm suffering? Or not just feel like I, I am suffering. What does that mean for me when I'm not yet at this party? The promise of salvation through Jesus The promise of salvation through Jesus is that he will guide us through this life and that he will give us true joy and satisfaction in him. If he's the one that's worth worshiping over anything else, everything else can be taken away except him. And we have him. Easier said than done, I know. And I don't want to downplay that. But I do want to speak what's true today. Also, we just spent time going through the commandments, the Ten Commandments and some of the laws that followed after. 
And one thing we learned from Josh is that for every item that says do not do this, there's a command to do something, right? In these commandments of to do, we experience flourishing and well-being for our neighbors. And it's a good thing for us in our hearts, too, because we are becoming conformed in the image of Christ. In this life and for the life to come, we get to prepare for God's feast. We get to show up to God's feast. And we get to stay as long as eternity. So I encourage my brothers and sisters in Jesus to remember what we live for. And if you don't believe that Jesus has accomplished all of this, well, I want to proclaim to you that, yes, he has. That he has, and he has an RSVP for you, too. I'm glad I got to share this passage with y'all because last week we didn't get a chance to take communion. But this week we get that opportunity to do exactly that. Um, You know, don't come to Josh for anything else today. But uh, he's the only reason we get to do communion. (laughs) Um, And through that, I hope that today's meal feels so much sweeter as we read about Israel sharing a feast with God, Christ preparing this feast to come, and this time of communion being a sign of what's to come. No sin will keep you away from stepping in the party. And if you're not a believer and uh, don't know about this party, I invite you to come. So will you meet me at the party? Bow your heads and pray with me. Lord, we are so thankful that... um, You have created this space for us to worship you, to get to know you. And there will be a day where we step foot in a paradise that we could never even comprehend. Scripture gives us uh, signs and, and, and gives some glimpses of what that might be like. But we just can never fully understand and comprehend until we get there. And that's great. And you'll be there, Jesus. A a space where we can celebrate no more hurt, no more pain, no more trauma, no more drama. Anything else that I might be missing, Lord, that is a part of a broken world, will not be in your presence. And so thank you that we get to step foot in that space. Lord, help us remember that that is reality that, that we get to experience. That is why we run the race, for others to know that they can enter into the space with you and be in your presence. Lord, help us remember when we forget on this earth that, that we don't live simply just to exist in this world, to, to work and to get it over with. There's purpose here, but we ain't home yet. We long to come home to you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.